In much of the country, the weather is cool, leaves are falling from the trees, and things are getting just a little bit spookier. From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Today on the show, we share stories of murderous clowns, vengeful witches, and headless men. She thought that maybe this fellow was sick because he was kind of moaning, and she went over to him to see if he was all right, and he raised his shoulders up, and he was headless. First, in recent years, scary movies have been thrilling filmgoers and producers alike. Todd Platts is a professor of sociology at Piedmont Virginia Community College, and he says we're in a new era of horror films. Todd, you're about to edit a book about a film company that's relatively new in the production of horror films, but it's had a lot of success recently. What's the company and the films that are really making a splash? So the company is Blumhouse Productions, which is run by Jason Blum. And they have made films like Paranormal Activity, which is one of the most successful horror franchises ever. They've made the Insidious movies. They've done some of the most critically acclaimed horror movies recently, such as Get Out. Uh, They've done Happy Death Day. They've just done a lot, a lot of movies. And the company is unique because of the way that they fund films. The films are only made for about $5 million, which in current Hollywood standards is like peanuts. But what happens with this is the directors are given a lot of creative control over their films. And it allows people like Jordan Peele, who directed Get Out, to have a lot of creativity and say in what his movie says and what his movie does. And in part, the creative control that he got allowed that movie to be so forceful and, and so well-liked as it was. Jordan Peele is really amazing anyway. Amazing as a comedian. And what a tremendous success Get Out was. Oh, yes. It was made for $4.9 million dollars. And I believe it made somewhere in the vicinity of $200 million in the U.S. And also was up for an Academy Award, which is very, very rare for a horror movie. Uh, The only movies that were up before that were Silence of the Lambs and The Exorcist. So Get Out, for people who haven't seen it, describe the plot. So Get Out is about an African-American male named Chris who is dating a white woman named Rose. And much of the movie is about the anxiety that he feels about meeting Rose's parents. And he's asking Rose at the beginning of the movie about this meeting. And he's he's asking, do they do they know that I'm black? So let me show you that scene. What? Do they know I'm black? Should they? You might want to, you know. Mom and dad, my black boyfriend will be coming up this weekend. I just don't want you to be shocked that he's black man. <laughs> I ain't never seen you like this before, bro. You know, it's funny. I was talking to a woman today who was describing a drive she and her husband had taken through rural Tennessee, and she called it a get-out sort of moment. I think that's interesting because in previous generations, they would have called it a deliverance moment. Yeah, you know? and I think it speaks to this idea of feeling really uncomfortable being out of place and feeling as if your safety could be in jeopardy of being in this location that you are unaware of. Some critics have said all of these new horror films are a little bit more likely to have political undertones than horror films of past decades. Would you say that's true? 
I would say no. I would say horror films have been very political, at least since the late 1960s. 1968 is seen as like this pivotal turning point in the history of horror. In that year, you had the movie Rosemary's Baby and the movie Night of the Living Dead get released. And these set out sort of new blueprints for what horror could be about. Uh, Rosemary's Baby came around the time that birth control started to become an issue. And the movie is about this woman giving birth to the devil. Uh, Night of the Living Dead came out at a time when there was a lot of uh, assassinations in the civil rights movement. And Night Living Dead has a lead character who is an African-American male named Ben. And he survives the entire movie uh, despite the fact that he's with a group of white people that are not helping his cause that much. But in the end, he is actually shot in the head by an all-white posse. And this movie was actually being delivered to distributors the day that Martin Luther King was assassinated. And when this movie played in inner city theaters, people just let out this this guttural scream when when Ben, you know, gets shot in the head. You just hear this, oh, and it really captured the the political, you know, strife that was going on at the time. And since the 60s, have there been periods of more sort of public cultural angst that were reflected in horror films? Yes. So across the 70s and into the 80s, you had three cycles. Um, One is the occult cycle, which dealt with haunted houses or possessions. Typically, uh, possessions dealt with issues of femininity. Mostly in these films, women are possessed, like The Exorcist. in the haunted house films, these are mostly dealing with uh, male uh, middle-class status. And in the films like Poltergeist and Amityville Horror, the male is going berserk because he can't afford to pay for the house. And of course, the house is haunted in the movie. Uh, you also have the apocalyptic horror film. This is These are films that use extreme violence uh, to show the the weaknesses of our society. So the good guys can't save the days in these films. Night of the Living Dead is an example. Hills have eyes. Then you have the Revenge of Nature film. Uh, these are when woodland critters are being encroached upon and we're polluting the environment. In the 80s and into the 90s, you had the growth of the slasher film. These are films like Friday the 13th and Halloween. And these are films where, you know, people are creatively killed off by a, by a masked killer. Films I cannot watch. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the, these are, you know, for a lot of people, very disturbing films because there's a, an interesting sort of sexual script in them that um, women who exercise, you know, like sexuality get punished for it. And it was seen as the, the slasher person was kind of like a parent that was punishing the kids. And then in the early 2000s, you had 9-11 happen. And in the wake of 9-11, you had the growth of zombie films and sort of the, the images that you see in zombie films where you have piled bodies, roving vigilante gangs, you have uh, the downfall of social structure. The, these 
are echoed in what we saw after 9-11 and also echoed in what we saw after Hurricane Katrina. And then you also had the torture porn films. These are films that focus on the prolonged torture and agony of a person like Saul and Hostel. This eventually blends into the post-recession horror film. And the post-recession horror films are like paranormal activity. This is where you have uh, the family is, you know, at risk of losing the house. So you have these foreclosure stories taking place at a time when a lot of people were losing their house. And then this brings us into our current crop of horror movies where a lot of people actually see the specter of Donald Trump haunting the narratives. Such as what? A good example would be the movie It. It follows a, a psychopathic clown that uh, sort of targets people through their fears and tries to divide people. And a lot of people saw Trump in, in the character of Pennywise in this movie. Trump worked to divide people. He worked on people's fears. And Pennywise does the same thing in these movies. Pennywise is the clown? Yes, Pennywise is the clown of the movies. And one of the classic scenes of this movie is when a little boy named Georgie goes out to play with a boat that his brother had made, and he chases it down to a storage drain, and he finds this clown whose eyes just appear above it. In the storm drain. In the storm drain. And, you know, we can watch the scene here. Can you smell the circus, Georgie? There's peanuts, cotton candy, hot dogs, and... Popcorn? Popcorn! Is that your favorite? Uh-huh. I do! <laughs> because they pop. Pop, 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 pop. Pop, pop, pop. Horrifying. Yes, and, you know, he bites the boy's arms off and eventually, like, pulls him into the drain. And, you know, this is such a horrifying moment that sets the tone for the rest of the film. So obviously Stephen King didn't have Trump in mind when he wrote the 1985 book, right? No, he didn't have Trump in mind. But what's interesting is he was at a women's march uh, right around the time that the original It was released, and he got on the microphone and suggested that we just elected Pennywise president. Really? Yes. Huh. <laughs> and so he has been on social media incredibly critical of uh, Donald Trump. Todd Platts, thanks for sharing your insights on With Good Reason. And you're quite welcome. It was enjoyable being here. Todd Platts is a professor of sociology at Piedmont Virginia Community College. Up next, ghost stories from Bengali culture. A yellow-eyed witch who sucks the life from unknowing strangers. Fish-obsessed ghosts who lure lone men to a watery death. And murderous ghosts who call out in the voice of a loved one. Suchitra Samanta is a sociology professor at Virginia Tech, and she says Bengali culture is filled with stories like these of ghostly women 
who wield supernatural powers after death. Suchitra, Bengali culture has many stories of supernatural figures, especially of women. You grew up in Bengal. Tell me some of the stories you grew up hearing. Um, Sarah, one of my earliest memories is that of my mother, who was a medical doctor, but who would draw on these stories to make a point to her rebellious teenage daughter. (laughs) For example, when I would want to go out to play in the evening after school, and I had big, thick hair, a head of hair that was very thick and curly. And she said, I am going to make braids out of that because if you go out with hair like that, there are ghosts on the trees and those ghosts are going to pick you up by that hair and take you away and you will be gone. (laughs) So I didn't have a choice. (laughs) My mother was a very strong personality and she braided my hair every time that I went out of the house to play. In addition to what your mother said about there are ghosts on trees who will get you, Did you ever hear from other relatives who would make reference to supernatural entities? You know, the only other memory I have is somebody who worked in our house, and uh, she would tell me stories just to scare me. So, you know, don't go to the bathroom at night because there's probably a ghost out there. And I remember feeling quite terrified. Years later, when you left Bengal and you reflected on some of these supernatural creatures, Did you have aha moments about, ah, it is different there? You know, I am a cultural anthropologist, and I started this project out of simple interest in looking at stories of the supernatural in Bengali literature. So not so much folk tales, but in Bengali literature, right? Because I knew that there was a rich trove of stories on the supernatural. My specific interest on women or female protagonists emerged when I found so many of the stories had female protagonists in them. So that was my kind of, you know, aha moment. That was my discovery as to how interestingly these many female protagonists voiced their lives and voiced what had happened to them in their lives. I selected the stories that I felt that women who had had some kind of marginalized experience in life had been violated in some shape or form. I found it a very interesting theme that in these stories, uh, most of which are written by men, some by women, that they would express what had gone wrong in their lives. One of the stories in your collection that I loved is about a woman who loves to eat fish. And after she dies, she misses, and not exactly haunts, but she returns to the nephew who used to bring her fish. Yeah, this is a traditional kind of female entity. She has died unmarried. She was unmarried. When she dies, you know, in a sad and lonely and marginalized life, because that is how it's perceived if she is not married, She haunts him and calls to him. And this is, again, a cultural idea that somebody who has not quite had the life that she would have uh, is an unhappy person. So she lures him to his death in the swampy, watery areas where she evidently now resides. Tell me about another story I enjoy in this collection about a woman who is called a witch but who has yellow eyes. And this is another widow. Yes. 
she is old she has no money she lives on the edges of the village and yes she has yellow eyes so what is interesting about this story is this is not a witch as in the west who flies on broomsticks and casts hexes but she is envious of all that is alive so when i think a young couple come by they're lost in this very dry area she looks on the plump child that they have and the child shrivels up and dies in a culture that has a great emphasis on the visual so the gods have three eyes for example you look on the god the god looks back at you so this concept that there is much of you that can be done through the eyes in this case malevolently do you mm-hmm. think that this is sort of emblematic of a stigma that women were still facing about being widowed and poor and sort of social outcasts definitely you know into the late 19th century into the 20th century widows were often much younger to their husbands there was no official age for marriage so my paternal grandma was married at the age of 7 there was no law until independence 1947 people would betroth their little girls to often men who were considerably older who would precede them in death and leaving a little girl or a young woman behind who also by law was not allowed to remarry so there was a sense that she had been responsible for her husband's death and to be attributed with which like powers is not a stretch you did your dissertation on a powerful mainstream hindu goddess who is so powerful she wreaks revenge on behalf of women who've been raped and yet ironically so many of these stories depict women who reflect a bengali culture of the past perhaps where women are not powerful and who are kept down Sarah it's a complex question it is very much a reason why I shifted research after many years of writing on kali to really looking at exactly the question that you ask which is how is it that we have such powerful female deities in hinduism and yet levels of literacy continue to be not particularly high and for minorities especially low reproductive health is not good children are married girls are married off illegally before the age of 18 high violence domestic violence so on many levels you know it is a supreme irony that indeed you have these powerful female deities but indian women and the, you know this is a complex story because on the one hand we've also had a female prime minister Indira Gandhi. Right. Uh, we do have women going into the professions in engineering and computers and so on, medicine, but there is much work to be done for India's women. Suchitra, thank you for sharing your insights with me on With Good Reason. You are very welcome, Sarah. Thank you for inviting me to do so. <laughs> So Chitra Samantha is a sociology professor at Virginia Tech and editor and translator of Hauntings, 13 stories from Bangla's master storytellers. Most kids remember telling ghost stories when they were young, but some of those kids grow up and keep telling ghost stories. Ben Mays is a theater professor and technical director at the Gillum Center for the Arts at the University of Virginia College at Wise. 
He's using his love of scary stories to guide a set design class on haunted houses. Ben, I love that you are making a haunted house with your students. Did you ever experience a haunted house when you were little? Yes, actually I did. The first haunted house that still haunts me to this day was a local carnival had come to town and I jumped on my bicycle rode down to the place and there was this haunted house uh, set up in the back of um, one of those big tractor trailer trucks but I had probably gotten no more than 10 to 15 feet inside that house and I just froze with fear I mean my my body just started physically shaking and I was sweating and my back was up against the wall (laughs) and I stood there for what seemed like an eternity, and finally the uh, young man who was running the attraction stuck his head in, like, hey, what, what's wrong? And I just said, I can't do this. And he was like, why? And I said, it's, I'm just scared. I'm just too scared. And he goes, ah, go on, man. You'll be fine. I promise you. And, and after much goading, I ended up going through the rest of the haunted house. And what was amazing to me was I was scared every step of the way. I was literally (laughs) feeling my way around every corner, expecting the worst. And then when I finally saw the daylight coming again at the end of that long, dark tunnel, I was like, okay, I'm going to make it. I'm going to make it. And I made it. But I never forgot it because there was absolutely nothing in there to scare me. Absolutely nothing. It was all dark. So it was all in my imagination. I had the same experience. They actually had to stop the attraction and have people come in and get my frozen with terror self out of there. (laughs) Did you ever, when you were young, tell ghost stories with your friends or egg each other on like, hey, I bet you won't go up to that house? Absolutely. We, 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 we not only did that with uh, our childhood friends, but the adults would do it with the children. I think it was actually quite common in our little uh, corner of uh, Southwest Virginia to tell um, hate stories, as we call them, and ghost stories. And uh, um, so we were always trying to scare someone else with these stories. And it, it was quite regular, too. It seemed like almost every evening as the sun would go down, Friends and family would gather on the front porch or the back porch and, uh, you know, just tell stories by the light of the light bulb. What are some of the haint stories you remember? One that um, one that my uh, that stuck with me for a long time was one that my mother told and she told this to be the truth. She, as a young lady, was walking home from a date and she passed by this little country church and there was this fellow sitting on the side of the bank overlooking the uh, creek and she thought that maybe this fellow was sick because he was kind of moaning and she went over to him to see if he was all right and he raised his shoulders up and he was headless. (laughs) How old were you when she would tell that story to you? I would say I was, uh, I remember the hearing it when I was nine, all the way up until I was 16. Would you picture a headless man periodically in the dark? Uh, my uncle still lives up that road, so every time I had to walk by that church, which is still sitting there overlooking that little creek, I always picture that headless man <laughs> sitting on the bank. Tell me some of the other hate stories you heard people would tell. Uh, one that... Um, there was a house below where I lived and in this little holler and um, 
supposedly a long, long time ago, there was a woman who lived there and she was thought to be a witch and she was accused of such and hung by the local population. And supposedly if you go by her house at night during a full moon and you go to the little bridge and you look in the water and say, witch, 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 and then quickly turn around, you will actually see a shadow of this woman hanging in a tree in the front yard of the house she lived in. Did you and your buddies ever do it? We did. (laughs) (laughs) And And, um, the result was basically um, my buddies took off like scared cats after we said it and turned around and jumped in the car and were actually leaving me. So I had to chase them down, throwing rocks at the back of the car to get them to stop to pick me up. (laughs) I can't imagine a better class for set design than making a haunted house. It's just so fun and people are into it. Much better than saying, let's do a scene in, you know, (laughs) medieval times, right? Yes. Um, that's that's exactly what I'm finding out was the the tools of the design and the the communication are the, exactly the same for the haunted attraction as it is for any theatrical production that we do. I think the difference is, is the story that we're telling and and the kids really latch on to this and uh, I think they actually learn without knowing they're learning in some ways. So did you and your students build a haunted house that people are visiting? Yes. We basically built two attractions with a uh, common theme and the first one we call the asylum and it's basically the series of rooms uh, loosely based on some of the stories we researched uh, nationwide actually of, of haunts at different hospitals and things like that. And so we've got like a morgue and we've got a chapel and we've got like a um, experimentation room and we even started off with a waiting room. And then we connected all of these with a series of long hallways and mazes that just totally disorient you. And um, then in the second building, the barn, that is where we go for more of those um, primitive fears. So you'll see your clowns with chainsaws and your ghouls and your zombies with the flesh dripping from their face (laughs) and the blood coming out of their mouth and, you know, missing body parts and things like that. And so we we kind of focused more on the storyline for the, the asylum portion. And then the the second portion you go through is just pure pure primitive type fear. What are you doing with sound? In one of our buildings, in the barn building, we're using loud, in-your-face, just rock and roll. Um, and that's uh, that's about the only thing that can compete with the chainsaws uh, that the <laughs> clowns are carrying. In the other building, we're going for a more subtle approach of um, basically just the sounds of people screaming. Ben Mays, this is wonderful. Thanks for talking with me and with good reason. Oh, thank you so much. Ben Mays is a theater professor and technical director at the Gillum Center for the Arts at the University of Virginia College at Wise. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back.
Welcome back. From Virginia Humanities, the following is an encore presentation of With Good Reason. Our fascination with birds dates back to Paleolithic times. In fact, one of the oldest cave drawings in France depicts an owl. Birds have inspired paintings and symphonies. And in modern times, the search for the ivory-billed woodpecker in the swamps of Arkansas has sparked a spirited scientific debate. But artists and scientists have no monopoly on our fascination with birds. It extends to anyone with a bird feeder and a battered pair of binoculars. Dan Crystal is a professor of biology at the College of William and Mary. He's passionate about all things birds, whether he's studying their uncanny ability to migrate thousands of miles or investigating whether golf courses can be safe habitats for bluebirds. He's made a scientific breakthrough on the effects of mercury poisoning in the headwaters of the Shenandoah River and its effect on the songbirds that eat the insects near the river. How does it come to be that so many years after we knew fish had been polluted and had high mercury levels that we didn't realize the birds did? Well, I think it's just people didn't want to know and nobody investigated it. And there was this great fixation on the fish because people eat the fish. Not so many people eat the, eat the birds. And then we delved into it a little and we found that it's because they're eating these spiders and the spiders have very high levels of mercury. And so what we're doing now is trying to solve that last piece of the puzzle, which is where are the spiders getting their mercury? Is it much mercury that you're detecting in those birds that eat spiders? It is a lot of mercury in terms of how much uh, mercury you'd expect to find in a bird. And it's at levels that are definitely affecting survivorship. The birds are not living as long and they're not having as many babies. What are some of the solutions proposed? How do you get rid of mercury other than feeding it to spiders? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, so if we could train an army of spiders to come and then train an army of uh, chickens to come and eat them all and then take the chickens away, we'd be all set. Right. It's a very difficult problem. Typically, in a situation where you have mercury or another contaminant in a river, you would want to dredge it up, uh, maybe even pave over a part of the river to keep the stuff from getting out of the sediment. But you can't do that when you have 100 miles of river contaminated because all that does, that will stir up lots of buried mercury, send it downstream into the rest of the Shenandoah River, onto the Potomac, and out into the Chesapeake, and we don't want to do that. So you're left with somehow trying to trying to contain that mercury's damage by keeping it from getting out of the river, by perhaps changing the habitat to keep the birds away from the river a little bit, if you're interested in birds. Uh, you really have to decide who you're trying to protect from the mercury, and of course people are going to come first, but specific solutions are going to be really hard in this case because it's been there for 50 years and it's difficult to deal with. Of course, your expertise and love of birds isn't limited to those that are consuming mercury-laden spiders. I'm amused to see that you wrote a paper back in the 90s called Crows Do Not Use Automobiles as Nutcrackers. (laughs) That really has me curious. What was that about? Oh, well, that paper uh, actually arose from a bet that I had with uh, someone else in my lab. We read another paper that was entitled Crows Do Use Automobiles as nutcrackers for walnuts and <laughs> we thought we read that paper and it was based on a single observation that someone had made in the rearview mirror of their car it was from a very obscure journal these are crows in california they eat walnuts and they drop them in the road to crack them that's the only way they can get them open and occasionally a car will run over one so some people were claiming that they're doing this in a in an intentional manner basically putting the walnuts out there to be crushed by the car oh yes and so we we tested whether in fact they are doing that and 
in our study, they clearly avoided cars. Now, occasionally they're not able to get out of the way of the car, and the car does run over the walnut, but the crow has a lot of trouble getting a walnut that's been run over by a car because other birds can come and steal it because it's smeared all over the road. So they actually are just trying to drop them, crack them, and then fly away with them and eat them on their own. There's something remarkable about the brain of crows. I heard someone say recently, crows are one of the smartest creatures. Well, that's a really tough question to ask someone who studies animal behavior because we don't really tend to talk about animals, different animals having different levels of intelligence. So if you're a crow, then being smart means doing the things that you have to do to survive as a crow. Now, some of those things happen to be what humans like to do, like stealing things, using tools. And so we consider crows smart because they're kind of like us among the birds. They're more like us than, say, a cardinal or a goldfinch. But there is some other brain research you've done on certain birds to look at how well adapted their brains are for figuring out how high they have to go to drop their clam or walnut on a hard surface to break it open to eat it. That's right. We were looking at crows, which drop walnuts, and we're also looking at gulls around here in Virginia that drop clams on roads and in parking lots. And they're flying up to a certain height and dropping it. Now, if they go too high, they're wasting a lot of energy. And if they go too low, the thing doesn't break, so they can't get the food. So if there's a softer type of road, they go a little higher. If the nut already has a little crack in it, they won't go as high. And they really seem to be paying attention to doing this very, very efficiently. What do you think crows were using before we had paved roads? Well, that's a really good question. And in fact, there weren't walnuts in California either. So this ah. whole new, this whole system is pretty <laughs> new there. But presumably, what we do know is that in the uh, on the coast, they drop snails and clams onto rocks, big flat rocks. And so that's probably where the behavior originated. And it's just been adapted by modern crows and their descendants to, to new kinds of foods and new kinds of hard surfaces. You've also studied the difference in brain sizes of the same species of birds that migrate as opposed to those that don't migrate. What are you after there? Well, the, Virginia provided a really nice opportunity for me to look at one of the holy grails of behavior research, which is to try to find a behavior that has changed and to find the part of the brain that has changed along with that. The dark-eyed junco is a sparrow that nests in Virginia in the mountains, and it also nests up in the boreal forest of Canada. So what you ended up is in the last 10,000 years with two different subspecies of juncos, one that migrates up north and breeds, and one that stays here in our Appalachian Mountains and breeds at the high elevations there. So I could ask the question, in 10,000 years of evolution, as migration took hold in one population, what happened to their brains? And what happened is that the hippocampus got larger, and that is a part of the brain which we know is involved in spatial memories. So it looks like as you evolve migration, that part of your brain gets bigger so that you can remember the various landmarks that you see on your migration, perhaps. People don't realize how amazing bird migration is. These birds, as babies, all by themselves, they have never been outside of their little area that they grew up in Canada, say. They head off in the dark all by themselves, and they fly for days at a time following both star and magnetic uh, cues, and they get to a place they've never been before, but it's the right place. They inherit the instructions to get there, to fly in the right direction for the right number of days, and then they go back and, and do it again year after year. I think it is so amazing. It, to me, it is more amazing than almost anything I've ever learned in biology. 
think of all the amazing things that we also inherit in our brains that we're just not even aware that we're using. Your research has also led you to the golf course. What are you doing there? What we're doing out on golf courses is asking a pretty straightforward question that surprisingly has never been answered, which is, are golf courses good places for birds to live or not? Sometimes they're the greenest, most park-like places around, and you think, oh, that's a good place for birds to be. But on the other hand, they're intensively managed with chemicals. And so they might be actually a bad place for a bird to be. So what we've been doing is looking at how well birds actually do on golf courses when you study them nesting. We study eastern bluebirds because they love to nest in birdhouses on golf courses. It's a really good habitat for them. It attracts lots of them, and yet no one had ever really studied, even though tens of thousands of nest boxes have been put up on golf courses around the country, no one has studied whether this is a place that bluebirds can really uh, produce a lot of healthy babies. Because it could be just luring them to a pesticide-laden environment, right? That's exactly right. It, unless someone goes and looks into this, we don't really know that uh, any of those babies are surviving and uh, coming back uh, to golf courses or to other good habitats. So what we found is that, indeed, the golf course nesting bluebirds do seem to do as well as other bluebirds on similar habitats that don't have the pesticides, but their babies appear to be not as large when they leave the nest, which is a pretty serious thing for a bird. So now we're looking closely at whether pesticides are responsible for that. And so far, uh, we haven't found a real smoking gun, but the research is ongoing. Evidently, golf course proprietors are thinking about trying to lure a different kind of business clientele to golf courses by establishing bird sanctuaries on golf courses. Well, that's been going on for some time. There's a group called Audubon International that will certify golf courses as being uh, environmentally friendly, and birds is a big part of that, but it also means uh, using less water and, and fewer pesticides. Now, Audubon International is not the Audubon Society, I should point that out, but they, uh, they have fairly strict guidelines for what golf courses have to do to get certified, and then the golf course can advertise to its patrons that they are an Audubon-certified golf course. And... They are doing this, as far as birds are concerned, without a lot of data. And that's what actually drew me into this. They're making decisions about what golf courses should do for birds, and yet no one has actually been out there studying the birds. So that's the kind of thing that, that draws me in as a researcher, is to try to fill a gaping hole like that where people are making assumptions without any data. Tell me some other things that you know that people are generally interested in that you know about birds. Oh, you're absolutely right. Yes, you're absolutely right. People are fascinated with birds. They want to know things that happen around their house, for example, like why the woodpeckers are chewing big holes in the wood above their garage. <laughs> and uh, some things just aren't answerable. They want to know about why the cardinal keeps smashing itself against the window over and over and over again, no matter what they do. Do we know that? That one, uh, I can give an answer, which is that the cardinal is seeing its reflection or the robin is seeing its reflection. And since it's spring, it's attacking what it thinks is another male bird. And then it hits the window. We don't know exactly what happens in its brain at that point, but it flies away. <laughs> and then the thing that you really can't answer is why it does it again and again and again and again. And that's really what makes birds different than people, is that birds' brains uh, aren't able to sort of rationalize that, gosh, I've flown against that window 40 times and the bird keeps coming back, so maybe I should just quit. But I'd say the, m the thing that the most people really ask me about and are surprised by the answer is dealing with baby birds that they find, most people don't realize that baby songbirds, like robins and goldfinches and song sparrows, they leave the nest before they can fly. 
their wings are not quite long enough. They're growing very rapidly, but a nest is a dangerous place to be, and so they get out as quickly as they can. And so they flop around on the ground for about two days, and lots and lots of people pick them up, bring them in the house, put them in a cardboard box, and call me and ask me what to do. Now the bird, of course, has been starved for half the day, and so it's, it's a crisis. But the reason that they do this is they say, well, little Johnny touched the bird, and I knew its parents would abandon it at that point because it smells like humans. And that's a huge myth that's cost a lot of birds their lives because adult birds will never abandon their babies at that age. And they also don't have a good sense of smell, so there's no way they're actually going to pick up a human scent or that they would care about a human scent. Once the babies have gotten to be quite old like that, the parents have invested so much in them that they'll never abandon them as long as they know where they are. Once you put them in a cardboard box, take them into your house, the parents are going to move on with the other babies that are also flopping around on your neighbor's lawn. So that little old wives' tale about not touching baby birds because they will pick up human scent and the parents will abandon them. That's just not true, and it's sort of dangerous in the spring because it leads a lot of people to take babies that they should just leave alone. Are you optimistic or alarmed about trends for songbirds in the Williamsburg and greater Virginia area? Um, Not optimistic at all about the population trends in birds. For a long time, people have been worried about the endangered species and the birds that we know are declining, But the problem now is that all of the common birds are declining too. Birds that we still have in great, great numbers are declining by sometimes 5% a year, which means that these vast populations of things like wood thrushes and tanagers and warblers are going to just disappear before we know it, and they're going to be rare birds, and most of our birds are going to be rare birds at the current rate of decline. And we don't really have a great handle on exactly what to do. We know what the problems are. The problems are that we are destroying their habitat. It's not really that much more complicated than that. There are too many, uh, too much real estate is being built on too many birds' habitats, and so the birds have nowhere to go, and so their populations are declining. So we really have to decide as a society in the next few years whether we're going to do anything about this to keep all of our currently common birds from, from declining and becoming joining the endangered species. At this point, good economy or bad, we have to figure out how to set aside enough habitat if we want to keep our birds. Well, Dan Crystal, it has been a pleasure talking with you today on With Good Reason. Thank you very much. Dan Crystal is a professor of biology at the College of William and Mary. For the parts of the country that have four seasons, this is the time of year when we see trees in all their autumn glory. But why do the leaves turn crimson, orange, and gold? Virginia Tech forestry professor John Seiler has been studying fall leaf color for decades, even to the point of photographing the same tree on the same day each year. He says, despite what many people believe, the peak fall leaf color in Virginia is remarkably consistent every year. The primary signal in all of this is is the length of the day, which occurs at the same time every day, every year. But there are environmental signals that modulate that and can move it forward or backwards. And those two primary things are how much rain, moisture in the soil, and how cold it's been at night and during the day for that matter. The best conditions are a good late half of the summer, a lot of soil moisture going into the fall, and we want nice clear days and cool nights and not 
really hard, hard frosts. A hard, hard frost will take your leaves off or at least uh, accelerate that a bit. Explain the day length part. So that's 80% of leaf color change? Yeah, if you, it's hard to put a percent on it, but it, it, say in an artificial environment, if you never let it get cold and, and it stays warm the entire time, if you, if you lower the length of the day, they're going to go dormant and you're going to get color change. So it, it is the driving factor. But any given year, depending on what is going on with the weather, it could move, say, plus or minus a week. Uh, I usually tell people the third to third to fourth week of October, there's going to be color change at that point. If we had a very hard freeze in the middle of October, it would move it along, and so the peak might occur, say, on the 20th. And if we don't get a lot of cool nights, it can move it into the beginning of November. So where does the leaf color come from? How do we suddenly find ourselves seeing these brilliant reds and yellows and other colors when it's been green and a little monochromatic all year? Well, one, uh, trees all summer long have other pigments that are totally masked by the green pigment. And this is similar to, say, putting one drop of yellow on a palette and then squeezing an entire tube of green paint out on top of that blending it all together, and there would basically be no hint of yellow at all. And in the fall of the year, the chlorophyll starts breaking down, leaving the yellow, which was there all along, displayed for us to see. And the yellows and those reds protect the tree during that period in the fall where they're trying to move all the nitrogen out of their leaves and store it for the winter for next year's sets of leaves. It's kind of like a a sunscreen. Why is it that New England has the reputation as for having the most fabulous tree color? Is Virginia really that far off from the New England color? No, in fact, I, I wouldn't say that at all. In fact, it, it's probably just some very good marketing over the years. But they, have, <laughs> uh, they do have a lot of sugar maple. They're those dazzling flame colors. And, you know, literally, sometimes the crown of the tree can look like it's ablaze. But they don't have anywhere near the diversity of tree species that we have in Virginia, West Virginia, down along the Appalachian Mountains and the Blue Ridge Mountains. So I think we have a whole lot going for us because we can even have an extended color season because some trees turn early and some trees turn late. So you have a much broader range on the palette and a a longer time as well. Uh, There's all our oak species. Uh, We have our northern red oak that turns a really dazzling red. We have our black oak that turns a yellow to a a yellow-brown. Then we add hickories that turn yellow. We have sassafras that turns a beautiful orange color and kind of on the early end. And then we even have sumacs, which occur oftentimes on the edge of roads, but they turn a beautiful, beautiful red, and they have a very, very large leaf, so they make a great uh, color display. Do you have a personal favorite tree for fall color? Well... For fall color in the mountains, it's hard to miss red maple. And I'll tell you why red maple, because it can be yellow and yellow and red in the same tree or solid red on the tree. And in fact, on an individual leaf, it can be mixtures of yellow and red. I was hiking back a few years with two of my daughters, and the red maples were so yellow down in the understory that after a couple hours, when we came out of there, we were actually kind of fall color blind, like from snow blind. Yes. Where things weren't looking right because everything was being filtered by these brilliant yellows. And I've never experienced anything like that. That was a, a really good year two years ago. 
and and there there are a lot of red maple. Uh, in fact, it's uh, increasing in our forests throughout the Appalachian Mountains. What are some of the theories for that? Some of the dominant ones are uh, a lack of fire. There used to be an abundance of fire in the Appalachian Mountains, well, well, everywhere in North America, to where uh, our understory was very, very clear. You know, you could easily ride a horse through the woods, you know, not being swept off of it because the woodlands were very, very open. And the forest, by all accounts, was more dominated by American chestnut. And with its disappearance, we had this mixture of oaks come into play. And so we probably overall increased the color palette. There are a lot of historical writings and so on that indicate it was it pretty much dominated uh, different sites along the Appalachian Mountains. It, it even had the name Redwood of the East because they got quite gigantic in places. What are your own favorite drives for viewing the color each fall? Well, j- just head to the mountains. I like to drive and not even look at a map. Just pick a state route and head up the hills. But the key thing is go from your farming in the valley and you get into the foothills and you start seeing some edge trees on the edge of fields and as little fingers of agriculture go up the valley and get a road that goes up and down and over the mountain because that's going to change the mixture of tree species that you see and take advantage of the, again, the really good palette and distribution of species that we've got here in the state. You know, no matter how beautiful those mountain fall colors are, it is those trees on the fields or in the yards that make me catch my breath every year. Why is it that they are so spectacular? Solo trees. Yeah, solo trees, one, are totally exposed in sunlight. And really nice sunny days uh, help develop the deep red colors. And also they tend to be very broad because they're grown in the open. So you've got a really, really nice canopy there to look at that's typically in very, very bright sunshine. And the same could be said for trees on the edge of the forest, which is, you know, you come around the bend and you see that one tree in the corner on the edge of the road that looks really spectacular. So it's, it's their size, but it's also the weather and the biology again interacting. They're getting sunshine on all sides and have a very, very large uh, crown to kind of display their colors with. Well, John Seiler, thank you for talking to me about leaf color today on With Good Reason. You're very welcome. The falling leaves Drift by the window The autumn leaves Of red and gold I see your lips The summer kisses The sunburned hands I used to hold. John Seiler is a forestry professor at Virginia Tech. Major support for With Good Reason is provided by the law firm of McGuire Woods and by the University of Virginia Health System, connecting doctors and patients through telemedicine to deliver high-quality care throughout Virginia, the U.S., and the world, uvahealth.com. With Good Reason is produced in Charlottesville by Virginia Humanities. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Elliot Majerzik, and Cass Adair. Jeannie Palin handles listener services. Special thanks this week to Bill Foy of Virginia Tech and Rosa Bott of the University of Virginia College at Wise. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.